0: Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique, which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play. Visit SaveTheDamnScore.com
1: today. A Pearson harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game the on? Side, yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't the say the score. laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come on, out of the gun. who's winning? Right falls towards the right corner, complete to Der who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. <laughs> You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network here's your host logan anderson welcome to episode number 66 of the say the damn score podcast as you just heard the big voice guy say i'm logan anderson a sportscaster currently in the process of moving from south dakota to the twin cities this podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting business and sharing career paths stories and advice from sportscasters at all levels around the country Today, I'm really excited to be joined by the voice of the Colorado Rockies, Jerry Shemmel And Jerry, how's it going? And thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks. You're great. How about you? Well, you know, this is the very last podcast that will be recorded in the current iteration of the Say the Damn Score studio, which is a highly technologically advanced spot in my spare bedroom in Beersford, South Dakota. So... <laughs> I gotcha. And I imagine that you've actually been in Beersford as a native of Madison. Yes, I have. I've been in Beersford a couple of times. So let's start there because I'm always interested in finding people with South Dakota connections in sportscasting, and there's more of them than I initially kind of thought there would be around the country. But with those South Dakota roots, how did they maybe help form your path to becoming a broadcaster?
0: Oh, Good question. You know, I, I think growing up in Madison, population 7,000 or so, it just uh, uh, had a great upbringing, had a great childhood. I mean, it was like, you, you know, this is like Mayberry. It, it's it just uh, uh, a great environment and that you could ride your bike anywhere you wanted to go and your parents didn't have to worry about you and, and you're just outside all the time. And I think it 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 gave me a great love for not only the outdoors, but for sports outdoors and especially baseball. So uh, just being outside and, and I think growing up in Madison, we started playing Little League at age five, Little League baseball at age five, literally. So I think I cheated by a year and got in early. But um and that's what you did in the summertime. Everybody played baseball, and, and in the in the fall, everybody played football. In the winter, you played basketball. In the spring, you, you ran track. In the summer, you played golf. So we did all those things. I have four brothers and sisters, and we all uh, four brothers and three sisters. We we all did the same thing. So uh, it I think it shaped my love for sports, and, and in addition, shaped my love for broadcasting later on.
1: At this point, how often do you get back to the area? You know, none of our family's
0: back there. Everybody's moved away. My parents are both deceased, and all my brothers and sisters are gone. But I get back there probably at least once a year. I've got a, a speaking engagements mainly, I come back for. So I know I got, I got one lined up for this fall in November to come back to Sioux Falls. So I try to get back there as often as I can, at least every year.
1: So you have a long list of titles uh, that you have held at some point throughout your not just sportscasting career, but career in general broadcaster, lawyer, author, commissioner of a pro sports league, motivational speaker, cyclist, coach, and of course a crash survivor of the Flight 232 in, that went down in Sioux City. We'll get more to that a little bit later, but what is it about maybe not staying with one thing and trying a whole bunch of different things uh, that, is, that is part of your personality?
0: Yeah, I'll say this uh, first that I've done all these things. I'm not great at all of them, but I but I've <laughs> done a lot of them. Uh, you know, I think Logan, it goes back to the plane crash. I think it was after that crash, I just decided that, that if I had an interest and I had a passion, and I had something on my heart I wanted to do. I was going to go get it. I wasn't going to lay back and sit in that chair and and wait for something to happen. I was going to try to make it happen. And if I I wanted to pursue something and find out if it was something I was happy with or satisfied with or wanted to keep going with, I was going to do that. So that's why I I ventured into coaching and, and broadcasting and cycling and all these things have great interest for me. Uh, you know, the one the one thing that has always stayed is the broadcasting. I've been doing that for now forever. But the other stuff I kind of dabbled in still do enjoy it and don't want to give it up. So I think it just go back to that crash. 112 people died and and I'm the, one of the 184 that survived. And I just decided that I was going to live life to its fullest after that when I saw these other people that didn't have that opportunity.
1: You wrote an excellent book titled "Chosen to Live," and I read the entire thing and it if anybody is interested in knowing all the intimate details and the crash and how it changed your life, you know I would certainly encourage anyone to read it. It's a great read, but I don't necessarily want to focus a ton on that because this is a broadcasting podcast, but there were two things from the from the crash that I really want to follow up on that I read about in your book, and the first was they made a movie based loosely off of your experience in that plane crash starring Jeff Bridges called Fearless. And you didn't find out that they were using your story and your likeness until you saw it in the movie theater. And you kind of fought with yourself and considered uh, taking legal action against them, but ended up deciding not to. And Just knowing that and reading the rest of your story, I think that a lot of that defines your personality. What went into that decision, and why did you do that?
0: Yeah, yeah. First of all, there's been some criticism of me not doing that. You know, stand up for yourself and don't let the you know Hollywood power you know push you around and all that and stuff. I never saw it that way. And 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 the answer to your question, Logan, is this: I just didn't think it'd be worth it. To me, I wasn't looking for money. Uh, To me, it was, you know what, I survived the plane crash. That's the most important thing. I'm moving on in my life. I'm going to get back to try to live a normal life again and try to achieve my dreams. And and I'm not going to let some uh, Hollywood movie producer uh, and movie company uh, change that. And I just thought if if, if I went through something like that, I think I would be worse off for it, for the experience. Uh, and to me, it just wasn't worth the time or the money or the effort. I just, I just wanted to put it behind me, and move on. How difficult
1: is it to be constantly asked about the crash or having to talk about the crash when that's something that I'm sure a, a big part of you just wants to move on from completely?
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really not difficult, to, and, and I'll tell you why. I think it's, it's therapeutic for me. I, I knew that early on after the crash. I mean, the first the first couple months that this thing was never going to go away. It was going to be, I don't think it completely defined me, but it was going to be attached to me forever. I mean, people are are going to want to know about it and they're going to ask questions about it. And I was okay with that because I, I didn't want to be somebody who said, no, don't ask me about that. And, and that's going to bring up bad memories and that's behind me. That's not me. And that's not what the crash has done to me. It, it is, uh, it has changed me and in many ways for the better. And if I can tell the story, Logan, and answer those questions uh, of people and have an impact in a positive way on somebody, then maybe that's one of the reasons I survived the crash. I don't think it's the exact reason or the only reason, but I think it's one of them. So I think two things. One, it's never going to go away. So let's just confront it head on. And secondly, if you can have an influence on somebody in a positive way, send a positive message to somebody, maybe change your life in a small way, then keep talking about it.
1: Have you always had that approach of just meeting challenges head on and not trying to skirt around the edges or was that something that you developed yeah. after the crash?
0: No, I think I probably always had that. I think that's part of the athlete in me coming out a little bit. It was, you know, let's form a game plan, let's try to win this game and let's go execute that that game plan and that was that was for me after the crash as well and and like I've I've always done that. I, I think that's sort of in my blood and uh, I don't know if it's my DNA, but I think it was it was uh, driven home uh, for me by my parents and probably my older brother, and 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 here I am doing the same thing. So yeah, I think it, that's always been in me. I think it's just a competitive nature that I have.
1: And the other part of the aftermath of the crash that you went through that I really wanted to elaborate on that I read in your book was there was a moment where you had been in a little bit of a tailspin, you had gone into a depression, Uh, you were struggling with, with your work, and there was kind of a wedge being driven between you and your wife. And she came to you, put her arm around you, and said, I get my strength from God, turned around and walked away. And that was kind of a defining moment for you where you developed your faith and started to make the turnaround in recovery Take us through that moment and what happened afterward.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, it was a time after crash, first first year after crash, where I was really struggling and I never saw it coming, Mogan. I, I really didn't. I thought... And I'll just, I'll withstand this and, I, and, and I'll, I'll do like everything else in life. I'll deal with it best I can and I'll move on. But it didn't, it didn't happen that way. And I was warned that it wouldn't, that survivor's guilt would come and anger and the depression, all that stuff would come just like everybody else. It would come to, that survived that crash. And, and my marriage started to, just to, to deteriorate a little bit. And I quit my job, the league, and I wasn't even talking to my family. And, and I, I realized that what that trauma counselor told me would happen was happening to me. And I think my wife just got to the point where she had she had one more life raft to throw to me, one more uh, buoy to throw to me because I was I was starting to sink a little bit. And I think that was her way of saying, you know what? Enough is enough. Um, if you don't want to you know turn to god and get strength from him where where i get mine then that's up to you but i'm going to throw you this lifeline you can either grab it or you can let it go and and i think that was your way of, of putting your foot down and saying all right um let's get back let's do our best to get back to normal in our in our marriage and in your life and that was a real turning point for me i mean for at first i was I was reluctant, and I was like, hey, come on, you're you're my wife. You're supposed to feel sorry for me and all this. And she's like, no, no, that's not what love is all about. And that was the beginning for me. It was like, all right, she's got a point here. I had no spiritual foundation whatsoever. What do I have to lose by turning to the source of, source of strength that she had? And that was God, and I did that, and that was the beginning for me.
1: And that laid the foundation for you know building your life into what it is now where you're kind of the renaissance man of broadcasting but it really is a incredible moment to read in your book
0: well i, I appreciate that and and i you know like i get i told told everybody and and told myself when i wrote it i wanted to be vulnerable in that book i didn't want to just write the stuff that sounded good i wanted to to be very honest about everything and open about everything and that was one of those moments so I mean, that was, it was tough to write, and tough to share, but I felt it was the right thing to do because I think there are other people that probably have their own plane crash. You, you, uh, you've got you, everybody, my wife says this, and it's very true. Everybody has their own plane crash. It might not be as bad as what I went through.
1: It might be worse
0: than what I went through, but everybody has their own plane crash. And if you can find a way to deal with it and move on from it as best you can in a healthy way, which I wanted to share in this book with that moment, then I needed to do that.
1: All right. Enough of that. Now on to broadcasting. So what was the first moment in your life that you knew that you wanted to be a broadcaster? Did you know at a young age or did you learn late?
0: I think it was later for me. I think it was really, to pinpoint, it was my senior year in college. I was going to school at Washburn University after transferring from South Dakota State and I was playing baseball and I realized that I was not going to be drafted or be a professional baseball player, which was my goal. And I, and I was an okay college player, but not great. And I realized I wasn't even close to to being any kind of major league caliber player. And I thought, you know what, the next best thing to being a player might be a broadcaster. I think that would be kind of fun. So I I, I switched majors. I think my senior year and had to catch up and with all these courses, but I, I got my degree in, in communication. So I think it really was then junior, senior year in college where I figured that it would be something I'd want to do.
1: And you made that decision, but you went to law school anyway after you got your bachelor's degree. Uh, you were able to dabble in sportscasting as you went to law school, but what went into that that decision?
0: Yeah, I got that degree in communications, and I wanted to do play-by-play. I, I wanted to be a, a play-by-play broadcaster, either radio or TV, and I just could not find a job. You, you know as well as anybody how competitive this field is, especially play-by-play. It's really difficult to find that first job, and I couldn't find one. And so plan B for me was to go to law school. I thought, well, if I can't find this job, I'll. I'll. I'll be. The backup plan is to, to to go to law school. Maybe, maybe somehow keep the broadcasting dream alive. And as soon as I got into to law school, my first year, I found a part time broadcast job as a as a law student. Which so I started kind of my career while I was a first year law student at,
1: at Washburn. So, how did you end up getting that gig at Washburn?
0: You know, it was um, timing. I just, I got really lucky. I had, I had actually sent a letter to no, no internet back then, sent a letter to uh, the general manager of the station that carried the Washburn games, football and basketball games and said, Hey, I've got this degree. I'm a graduate. I'd love to get involved in any way I can. And I got a call back and the guy says, you know what? Your timing is perfect. We're looking for a color commentator for football for Washburn games. And so I thought, well, I, I I, I know a little bit about football. I played in high school, but uh, I was the color commentator my first year in law school for Washburn football. And then the play-by-play guy left uh, after that, and they offered me the play-by-play job. So my second year of doing Washburn games, I was their their voice, their, their radio voice. So it was all about timing. It was luck. It was uh, a little bit of perseverance, but I think probably God smiling at me at the same time.
1: Washburn is the Ichabods. That's their mascot. What is an Ichabod?
0: Ichabod Washburn founded the school. Yeah, people ask that a lot. (laughs) It's one of the the crazier uh, nicknames in in college sports. But Ichabod Washburn is an actual person who started the school, founded Washburn University in the 1860s, I believe. And so uh, they just started calling them Ichabods. I think there have been Logan... Many many moves to try to change the name, and they always come back and say no. Let's stick with Ichabod. So I think we
1: like the uniqueness of it. It 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 sounds pretty cool. I think certainly is unique. So from that point, (laughs) your next position, as far as I could find, was with the Kansas City Sizzlers of the CBA, the kind of semi-pro minor leagues of the NBA for a time. What was the connection, and how did that? Uh, come about?
0: Yeah, I graduated law school and um, it was all I had was this part-time job at this radio station and I was looking for another opportunity. And uh, the Kansas City Sizzlers, after the Kansas City Kings and the NBA moved to Sacramento, started this this minor league team, this, this the Kansas City Sizzlers, and I contacted them and, and asked them if they might be looking for a broadcaster. And I was lucky enough to get hired as a color commentator again, not a play-by-play guy, but a color guy, and then I was going to do sales for them. So I worked for them for a couple of years, uh, driving back and forth from Topeka to Kansas City and sold uh, season tickets and marketing packages for them, and I was their color guy. And then the same thing that happened at Washburn happened with the Sizzlers. Their play-by-play guy left, and I took over doing their games, which I did for the next couple of years.
1: The CBA is well-known as being kind of a freewheeling association with a lot of, you know, big personalities, a lot of long bus rides, a lot of interesting stories. What are a couple of your go-to stories from your time in the CBA? Oh,
0: they're, they're, those are some good ones. There some really good ones out there. I know that because um, it was a, a little bit of a fly-by-night. I mean, we, we had teams folding and starting and moving and uh, the time that I was there and and it it was difficult to to make any money as a as CBA owner, so there was a lot of turnover. But there was one time in Rockford, Illinois, uh, where uh, the 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 jump tip to begin the ball game happened. The game started, and one of the players got his hand caught, and the referees whistle the the the. Uh, the uh, the lander that held the whistle together, got his hand caught in it. They both fell down. I'm doing this game. This is the beginning of the game. They both fall down the court. He breaks his hand and he's out for the, the whole year. And it, it never resurrected his, I can't remember the guy's name right now. Craziest thing you've ever saw. I got his hand caught in the whistle of the referee and they both fall and he breaks his hand as like, this never happens anywhere else, but the CBA. And there was another time in Cincinnati, uh, the Cincinnati Slammers, they called them. Uh, we were playing a game, and they were on the brink of, of financial disaster. And at halftime of the game, they announced the second half wasn't going to happen because the team had folded. I was like, you got to be, you got to be kidding me. We're at halftime of the game. You're, can't you just finish the game? As so they decided to finish the game, and then after that, the, the franchise folded. So we were, we almost had a game fold at halftime. Another time, a guy broke his hand before the, the 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 basketball
1: game ever started. I hope you still got paid for a full game when they folded at halftime. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't remember. I think I did though.
1: So at some point, you went on to become the deputy commissioner of the CBA and started getting into you know the the administration aspect of the business. How did that come about, and did you still do play-by-play during that time?
0: Yeah, I think it was after a couple of years doing the, the Sizzlers, two or three years doing them, where um, I, I uh, had a good relationship with Jay Ramsdale, who had become the commissioner of the league. And he asked me if I would be interested in, in coming out to Denver and being his deputy commissioner and legal counsel for the CPA. And he said you can still do freelance broadcasting if you want to. So I had been doing a, a couple games on ESPN, just a minor, just some putting stuff together as a freelance guy, just a handful of games and said, you know, keep doing those, come out and work with me. And I thought, you know, good opportunity. I might, if I have to give up the broadcasting, get into sports administration, but I just thought it was a great opportunity to be in the league office, to work with Jay, who I had a great relationship with and, and make some great contact with the NBA. And so I did that in the
1: spring of 1989. What lessons did you learn in administration that help you on the play-by-play side?
0: Yeah, I think just about relationships. I, I think it was, you know, in broadcasting, you're always looking for that that next job or trying to get better and focusing on your own work and all that. In, in administration, you have to be a great communicator. And I think that really helped me with broadcasting to, to make contacts and develop relationships with people because that's what it really is all about in sports administration. I mean, you can be a marketing wizard or you can be a legal wizard or stats guy or whatever, but if you're not, Good at creating and um, and cultivating relationships with people, then then you're not going to be successful. So that that really helped me a lot and made some really good contacts in the NBA. David Stern was the commissioner of the league of the NBA at that time, and and uh, we developed a, a pretty good relationship. And Russ Granick and his deputy and and all these legal people in the NBA that we work with really helped me uh, learn how to work with people at a high level, and I think it really
1: paid off. You mentioned that you worked with David Stern. He's well known for, you know, maybe having a little bit of a temper flare up from time to time. Did you ever experience that?
0: No. I, well, I, I saw his angst a couple of times. Not not against us about the CBA or me personally, but uh, when when he talked about. Um, some of the legal issues involved in the NBA that involved our players, CBA players as well as NBA players. I saw a little bit of that anger. <laughs> he, he was not not he was an attorney like me, not afraid to to uh, bring legal action against anybody or threaten that legal action. So I saw him in action a couple of times, but it was I think it was very calculated. I, I think that's just uh, his way of getting things done, and he was awesome. He was an incredibly successful NBA commissioner in my mind.
1: So you talked about Jay Ramsdell a little bit uh, in a previous question, and I just wanted to, you know, ask, he was a 25-year-old commissioner of a pro sports league, even though it was minor league. That's still incredible and had to have an extremely, uh, you know, have the, the right temperament and personality and everything. Obviously, he had a big influence on you. What is it about him that was so special and made it so tragic with his passing?
0: I think it was just his authenticity, Logan. I think he, he never tried to be somebody that he wasn't, he was just, he looked like a kid. I mean, he was 25. He looked like he was 16 years old and he talked like it and he kind of acted like it at times, but he was really, really brilliantly smart and that came across. So it it wasn't like he was trying to, he he knew that he looked young and he knew that he sounded young and he, he knew that he was young. but. He was himself, and when you got to know him a little bit, and when David Stern got to know him, and league owners got to know him, they loved him. They, they all just saw this this kid who was brilliant but had it all figured out, and he was very organized and very articulate, and, but he wasn't trying to be somebody that he was. wasn't trying to be a big shot. He was just being himself, and, and that came across, and that's why he was so beloved, I think. He was so respected and, and so loved by everybody that, that came across him.
1: We chatted about the year after uh, Flight 232 crashed and you kind of went into that tailspin and that depression, but at some point you got out of it, started to turn things around, but you didn't, during that time you had quit your job as commissioner of the CBA and were temporarily unemployed. How did you find work after that point in your career?
0: Yeah, I I I quit my job at the league about three months after they had asked me to, to take Jay's place and, and I did that on an interim basis and then I hired another commissioner and I just uh, I wasn't comfortable with that whole situation. It was just after a plane crash, it just didn't the, the pieces didn't fit back together very well for me. So uh then that was a big reason I, I quit and, and uh I, I decided that I was going to be open after that. I want, obviously I had to get back to work. Thank God my wife was working. We had some kind of income, but um, I was, I was working hard trying to get another job and I wasn't sure if it was in broadcasting or if it was in sports administration and I was following the path of both. I was trying to, to find something. And I just decided after that, that whatever I did was what, where God was leading me. I was going to look at any door that might be open and I was going to let him direct that, and what he did was directed me to back into broadcasting. Minnesota Timberwolves in their second year were looking for a broadcaster. They just got a cable t v package a month before the season, less than a month before their season started, their second year. They needed another broadcaster, and I was available, and I had experience doing t v and radio and the CBA and um, interviewed for that job and all of a sudden we moved to, to Minneapolis. So that's how it happened. I was just seeking opportunities and that's the, that's the first one that really came along.
1: So what was the what was going through your head at the moment right before you turned on the mic to call your very first NBA game for the Minnesota Timberwolves?
0: <laughs> I remember it distinctly it was a it was a preseason game in Charlotte, North Carolina against the Hornets. And I, I remember um, getting the broadcast position and getting me to go on the air and got all my charts ready and all that and just taking a deep breath and thinking, my gosh, the dream has finally happened. I, this is really incredible. And I just I said a prayer. I just said a a real simple prayer of thanks that uh, I'd thought about this job for a decade and here it was and it was just uh, I was totally thrilled about it. It was on the radio. I was doing both radio and TV, but that was a radio job and. And uh, I can remember almost every moment of it as well. We got beat by the Hornets, but it was a great experience.
1: And the next year, they kind of reduced your role because of what I read about was just kind of internal politics and uh, other people knowing people better than you did, I guess. How disappointing was that and what happened?
0: Yeah, it was, you know, they came to me uh, about the middle of my second year and said, you know, we might have some changes next year. Uh, We got a a play by a radio guy that, I guess, Kevin Harlan and I were splitting the radio duties when when I wasn't doing TV. He was doing radio. He was doing the -the over-the-air games. I was doing cable. So they said, well, we want one guy to do all the radio games, and we have a guy in mind, so we can't guarantee to come back next year. So that was a little bit of a blow to me, but it it was, it really didn't, you know, at that point, I think Logan, I was, I was so trusting of God that he had the right plan for me that I I wasn't worried about it. Um, I I really wasn't all that concerned. Would I be disappointed if I didn't go back in the NBA? Of course I would. But then this Nuggets opening came up and, and I knew that it was going to happen. I, I knew that Jeff Kingery, who was doing the, the uh, Nuggets that time was moving to the Rockies because they announced that a year before that. So I thought maybe this is my opportunity to to go back to Denver and do those games. And and that's how it turned out.
1: And I'm probably going to butcher this name, but uh, you really, what really helped you get that Nuggets job was a relationship with a guy in the front office named Tim. Is it Lewicky?
0: Yeah and, yeah. and
1: that just kind of shows that it is who, you know, and even though, you lost the position in Minnesota, that relationship helped you to get your foot in the door.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it did. And Tim um Tim uh, he was the vice president of marketing for uh, the Timberwolves. And so I knew him. And I'd actually known him from well before that. He was in Kansas City, and I met him a couple of times there. So we had a little bit of a relationship, but formed a good one in Minneapolis those two years. And then he became the president of the Nuggets. And that was, you know, obviously a great break for me. I had I had a connection with the with a team that had an opening as a radio guy. It wasn't automatic. They interviewed a lot of other people. They I think they had, they had 250 people apply, yeah. and I think they interviewed ten or fifteen guys. So it wasn't like I was handed the job, but uh, I was fortunate enough to get it eventually.
1: What was the hardest question they asked you in the interview process? Do you remember any <laughs> of those? Uh
0: yeah, I think it it was. Um, how are you going to handle a team that's not very good?
1: Because
0: <laughs> they knew that they weren't going to be very good that first season, and they weren't. Uh, but, you know, they ended up being, you know, decent team. But um, and, and I went back, and I don't think even Tim asked me that question. Somebody else who was on that panel asked me, and I said, well, go back to two years I did the Minnesota Timberwolves and the years I did the Sizzlers, we, they were all bad teams. And I just took – I told them I took a lot of pride – in 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 doing my best with a bad team and and not not losing energy not losing focus not not losing any of the attention you should give to a team even if they're losing so I told them I think I want people to tune in and not know what the score is until I gave it to them. I didn't want them to know what the score was or if the nuggets are getting beat by 20 points by the tone of my voice I wanted them to hear it with the score I wanted it to be the same way all the time
1: what were some of the tips and tricks you developed to maintain that energy and focus in a blowout?
0: You know, it, it, it went down. This is number one for me. I, I always made a promise to myself that I, if I made the NBA, which was my goal, that was my dream, doing, doing radio uh, basketball all those years, was if I ever got in the NBA, I would never take a night off. I would never let my energy drag. I would never let my enthusiasm fall. I I wasn't going to be a homer, and I wasn't going to be all excited when the team's getting beat by 30 points, but I was going to give it my best every night. I made that promise to myself. And then when I made the NBA, I think I kept that promise. I, I remember a couple times thinking, I remember that promise you made to yourself. Do not let yourself fall a little bit here. And I think that really paid off for me. It was, you know what, you're here. You made this commitment to yourself. Let's keep that commitment.
1: And did that make it more rewarding when the Nuggets would eventually go on to have some good years?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it did. That, that I tell people all the time, it's still fun. It, even if your team is losing, it's fun it's a lot more fun when your team is winning. <laughs> so so when the Nuggets started winning and and, uh, and and after they started winning, they had some down years again in those 18 years I did the games, but they started winning. It was just that much more enjoyable and rewarding.
1: You know, there was an incident that I'm pretty sure happened while you were the broadcaster for the Nuggets. And it kind of comes full circle to what's going on in our society right now with the Colin Kaepernick controversy, but you had, a player sit for the national anthem in like 1996 before internet and social media and everything, uh, was, was a thing. And I guess, how did you react to that and how would it be different now if the same thing happened?
0: Yeah, I I think, uh, today there would be more attention to it. Although there was a great deal of it back then. It was, it was our player, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the old Chris Jackson from LSU, who was a great player, by the way, Logan, he was, he was a terrific scorer. And that really was the end. Of, that was the beginning of the end for him. Uh, he, he was never the same after that as a person or, or a player It seemed. I think it really got to him, but, you know, I tried to, to be as, as fair as I could. And, and, and I, I felt like I needed to be um, the, the guy that doesn't have to take that opinion because I felt like I was a play by play guy. I wasn't a columnist. I wasn't a sports talk show host. Uh, Did I have my opinion on it? Yeah, I thought he should have stood. And and I said that, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. And when people asked me about it, I said, you know what? I'm the play-by-play guy, and I'm really reporting what he did, not commenting, giving my opinion on it. And I think that middle ground was the right way to go. If I was a talk show host as well as a broadcaster, it would be different. If I was a a newspaper columnist, it would be different. But I tried to take middle ground, and I was friends with Mahmoud. I was good friends with him, and I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he got really bad advice from some people, and I felt bad for him. But at the same time, I believe what he did was wrong.
1: And during your time with the Nuggets, I couldn't get a real clear timeline on how and when this happened, but you also were. Towards the end, coaching baseball for Metro State. Uh, How did that come, and how did you handle that balance?
0: Yeah, it was uh, 2007. I was just a volunteer coach for them, Um, and I would just show up whenever I could to games and practices. They kind of let me in and when I was available to help out. And then 2009, right in the fall before that 2009 season, their coach left. He took a different job. And I was just a volunteer coach, and they asked me if I would be interested in being the interim head coach. And I said, I'd, I'd love to try that. And I went to the Nuggets and said, Hey, can I can I cut back on the schedule a little bit? There was somebody else who was fill in for me without any kind of problem. And um, they said, Yeah, go for it. And so I did that. And and I was the head coach of Metro State for uh, one year, two thousand nine, and uh, it was it was a great year. We had a lot of fun. We had a good team, and had some success and, and I, and I did both. And the fact that I just was able to do home games uh, for the most part, I did some road games uh, made that schedule work. And as well, the arena uh, where the Pepsi center where the nuggets play right across the street from Metro state (laughs) and it's, and it's field. So literally across the street, so I could walk back and forth. And so logistics worked out pretty well.
1: So I'm curious, as you mentioned, you, you don't have strong opinions during a play by play broadcast, but did being a head coach, change the way that you talked about head coaches during your broadcast.
0: Yeah, I I think it did. Um and and I think it it can't help but that because I hadn't been coaching before and, and 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 being a head coach I I knew what the pressures were. I mean, not nearly like an NBA coach, but I knew what the the responsibilities were, the time demands were the responsibilities and the, and the pressure that would be put on a head coach at, at any kind of level. And you have to deal with parents and all that kind of stuff in in college. I just got a new appreciation for what George Carl, who was the head coach at the time was going through. And I just, I I felt like I needed to cut coaches slack because I found out exactly what they had to go through. And not exactly, but I had a pretty good idea and it was like, you know, give these guys a break. If, uh, you know, they're not, you don't agree with what some of the moves they had on certain nights, then that's your problem, not theirs.
1: You mentioned George Carl, and he's obviously a big personality. Do you have any fun stories that you can share about uh, uh-huh. your time working with George?
0: Uh, I don't think there's any particular ones, Logan, but we had a lot of fun together. We we did a lot of stuff on the road, went out to uh, dinner a lot, to, shared some beer, shared some stories, George is a CBA guy. George came up to the, the Continental Basketball Association, so we had that we had that tie, and uh, he was a very successful CBA coach. In fact, he had the team that had the best uh, regular season record in, in uh, CBA history, the um, Albany Patroons, when they went 50 wins and six losses one year. So we had a lot a lot in common. Um, and and we, we shared a lot on the road and, and just had a lot of laughs together. I don't think there's any particular moments that stick out, but uh, just a good friendship. Then it continues with George. He's a good man.
1: So at a certain point, you decided to start poking around. And when the circumstances were right, you went for the Colorado Rockies position, wanting to get back to baseball, kind of your first passion as a kid, what you played in college. How hard was it to make the decision to leave the Denver Nuggets to go to the to the Rockies, and how did that uh, how did that sequence of events turn out?
0: Yeah, it was it was a tough choice because I I, I love doing the NBA and and I and I still do I, I miss it and I miss it a lot I miss that energy and that environment a lot and those the the intensity of games. Baseball, a totally different pace of broadcast, as you know. Um, that, that job came about, and I had been in the NBA for 20 years. I was two with Minnesota and, and 18 with the Nuggets. And I thought, you know what, 20 years in the NBA, that's a good run. You, you, know, that's, you should be, feel good about that, feel, feel proud about that. And now if you're going to make a switch, you know, you got a new career. At the age of 50, I got this job with the, with the Rockies. So it was the same thing, basically. The job was in town. Um, I, I had some contacts with the radio station and the Rockies, but they had 225 applications for the job and they, they, the interview process lasted three months. I mean, they talked to a lot of people and, uh, I ended up getting the job and, and, uh, difficult choice. Yes. Um, but one that I, I felt I wanted to make yes. At the same time, I wanted to do baseball was like you said, my first love and something I thought about for a long time and thought, you know, if I can do NBA and Major League Baseball, I'm a blessed guy.
1: How was it different, or I guess, how did you make the adjustment from the fast-paced, constant talking of basketball on the radio and then going to baseball where it's slower-paced, more conversational, and a lot of the art is knowing when to shut up?
0: Yeah, that's true. It was a you know it was a challenging transition, really was, but i I thought about it a lot and practiced it, and I'd done some minor league baseball and and I just realized that I had to be a completely different broadcaster in the n b a as you know logan you you you're following the ball and it's just constant rapid fire play by play the score is always changing, the ball's always moving, and there's something that always happening in baseball there's one pitch, and there's thirty seconds and nothing, so you just have to be. Um, with a different mindset. You have to have stories and you have to have anecdotes and have to relay conversations and relationships and stats, although you can't lean on stats all that much. you got to have more stats. So it's just a different pace, a different, uh, a different approach to broadcasting. Fun? Absolutely. Different? Completely.
1: How long did it take you to start feeling really good about your baseball broadcasts?
0: I think it was uh, half a season, my first year, and you know, it's 80 games. It, it, it really took that long for me, um, just kind of feeling my way around. I had a I have a partner, still having Jack Corrigan. So you gotta, when you're not doing your play-by-play inning, you're doing color for him. So it was, uh, it, it took me half a season to really feel to where I'm I'm comfortable and I'm not stumbling, I'm not nervous. I can just go about this and be confident. But it took, you know, good took took a good 80, 90 games to get there.
1: Denver is a unique sports market with a pretty passionate following. What does it mean to be doing games in Denver? Kind of your adopted, it's not your hometown, but it's your adopted home city. It's awesome.
0: (laughs) It's a, it's a great sports town. It really is. It's a Broncos town, number one, but the Rockies are not too far behind that now. And and the Nuggets and Avalanche are, are pretty close trailers. So um, to be such a crazy sports town and be in the middle of that as a play-by-play guy, just a, it's a lot of fun. It really is. And, and fun, not that, you know, people recognize you or pat you on the back, fun just to be involved in that energy. Um, two Super Bowl wins and, and you know, the Rockies making the playoffs last year and they are in the world series and the Nuggets knock on the door, the Avalanche in the playoffs. It's a great time to be in Denver sports right now. So Being a part of that is just, uh, to me, just uh, on a daily basis, a lot of fun. The energy that's involved with it uh, rubs off real easy to me.
1: I want to just ask you a couple questions that I ask just about everybody now, and then we might dibble into a few more things. But I like to ask everybody what their broadcast horror story is. And we're going to take out ending up in a cornfield because of a plane crash but uh <laughs> when i say broadcast horror stories i mean just when some equipment went wrong or your location was awful or something funny happened that was really mm. difficult at the time but you can laugh at now <laughs>
0: yeah i got one it, with the nuggets uh we were playing a game in phoenix and i had the flu i, I had stomach flu really badly and um they, and I, I let people know and they said, do you want to get us, you know, a backup? And no, 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 I can do this. I can, I can tough it out. And I've done it before. I've I've done games being sick, but this one was really rough. And I I did the game. Uh, well, I did, did the the first half, went in the bathroom and, and, and I I thought I might have to vomit. I was like, no, just, you're you're okay. So I come back out, I, I finished the rest of the game, and in the post game, I just started feeling even worse, like it's coming up here any moment. So I asked our trainer, the Nuggets trainer, and back then we did the games right next to the Rockies bench. Can you get me some kind of bucket or trash can or something? And so he gave me one. I had it between my feet, and it's the the second I signed off, Logan, I mean uh, that's it. Good night on the. On, on the Denver Nuggets radio network, I leaned over and vomited violently into that trash can. I held it until, the, until I signed off, and then I let it all out. So uh, I don't know if that's a nightmare, but that's, that's the one that uh, I recall probably most vividly that I don't, I don't care to repeat again.
1: That's definitely a good one. <laughs> Thank you. When you go into writing a book, and you've written two. What's the most difficult part about being an author? I mean, you mentioned why you wanted to do it, but the day-to-day of actually doing it while juggling a major league or NBA broadcast schedule, mm. how do you get the time to write that much? Yeah,
0: for for me, both of these books were were at my own pace. It wasn't like I had a writing contract with a publishing company saying, you got to have this is your deadline it was you know and i'm going to do this on, on my own at my own pace so uh, the the chosen to live i just i wrote basically during the season one year with the with the nuggets uh, just in my hotel room and in the nba schedule you play 80 games and baseball you play twice that many so i had a little more time with the nba schedule to do it and i just i just did it at my own pace and and so that wasn't difficult the challenge for me was uh working through the emotion of writing that book about the plane crash it it was it, it, it was it was difficult sometimes. It brought up a lot of a lot of memories that I had kind of cast out and never thought I'd revisit, it, and they all came back. And so the, the emotional sort of semi-trauma of writing that book really really hit me pretty hard. Um, it, and the the other challenge of writing a book is, when do you stop editing? Because <laughs> you can read it over and over, and you're going to have, you're going to want to do something different each time. So it got to the point where I all right, I've done this four or five times now, this is enough, just just let it be, and this is your book, because you can go back, and you can change a word here, a word there, and you can do that forever, and there comes a point where you just got to push it away and say, all right, this is good enough, and that was a challenge for me as well.
1: Do you have a near photographic memory, just because uh, reading that book and in that all the stuff you remember so vividly from that moment, and I certainly cannot relate to being in anything similar to that, but in traumatic spots, sometimes it feels like things just go so fast. You don't remember how it all happened. You seem to just about remember everything. Are you gifted with a really strong memory?
0: Uh, I I think maybe a little bit of that. I don't think there's a a great gift that way. I think what happened with the crash was um, that... I began telling the story immediately afterward to the media and and telling it so many times that I, it just ingrained in me. And then I I do remember thinking, all right, um, if you, this is before we hit, before we, we crashed was all right, if you're alive, then, then you need to, to do this and do that and not panic and not flee the plane. And I think, I think thinking that through and anticipating uh, surviving the crash and not being hurt to where I couldn't, uh, physically do something, I think paid off. I think that, that helped my memory of it. And, and then writing the book, a lot of it came back. So, you know, there's only one, uh, there's really, there. I I guess I probably remember it all, whether that's healthy or unhealthy, but, um, I think those are the reasons why I've been able to, to recall that crash. And it's still pretty vivid today
1: in my mind. We talked earlier in the podcast about a movie that you were not happy to see that involved your likeness. We're recording this on the 17th of May, and it'll probably be released in early June. But you have a movie about your bike ride across America called Godspeed coming out, I believe, on Tuesday. We got to get into that a little bit. What made you decide to ride your bike across America? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mental instability. No, I'm just joking. Um, you know, Logan, I, I had ridden my bike, not raced it, but ridden my bike across America a couple different times, 2004 and 2005, um, as a, as uh, fundraisers for two different charities in Denver children's hospital, and then a, a Christian uh, grade school. Um, and I took my wife and kids, and we made it a vacation and I, I rode at my pace, my leisure did about a hundred miles a day stayed in the motel room, went out to eat every night. It was, it was great. It was, we did it twice. We enjoyed it so much the first time we did it again. And that got me thinking, what about if I, race, because I had done some bike races, not, not serious stuff, but I'd done some races. What about racing my bike across the country? How, how cool would that be? So I found the race across America Ram. And for many years, I contemplated that thinking this would be really cool. I don't know if I can pull the trigger on it or not. Now I'm doing baseball and it's the middle of summertime when the race happens. And a couple of years ago, 2014, I decided I was going to pull the trigger on it. I just you know, thought if I'm ever going to do it, I need to do it now. So I found a race partner, a buddy of mine. that's a good cyclist in Denver, Brad Cooper, and I went to him, approached him, and he was in. and And in 2015, we did the two-man relay for the the Race Across America and won our division and beat actually beat several four-person teams.
1: You know that involves riding across deserts, up mountains. I'm imagining. Uh, what is the most difficult part of the country or terrain to bike across? <laughs>
0: Well, I thought it was the Rocky Mountains until we did Ram and then we discovered that the Appalachian Mountains in the eastern part of the country um with driving rainstorms for 3 days straight is more difficult than the Rockies. You know, we the, the Appalachians are shorter, they're they're not as not as up and down, they're not as high as the as the Rocky Mountains which we live in and train in, so we were confident doing that, but they're very steep and 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 they're up and down, and it started raining when we were going through Indiana, and once we hit Ohio and the Appalachian Mountains, it never stopped raining. It, it Day and night, it was driving rain. We were in the middle of a thunderstorm for three days, and going up and down those Appalachian Mountains in the dark, the rain, with the wind blowing like it was, was really challenging for us. It was easy compared to the Rocky Mountains.
1: Taking in all of the scenery and all of the stuff that you could see along the way, I know you said the first time you went at your own pace and were probably able to take that in. Was it harder to do that when you're actually racing and trying to you know, beat other people and go for time?
0: It was. Yeah, it really was because we were we were racing, you know, and you're thinking about going as quickly as you can without killing yourself and as safely as you can. So what we did during the day, we did an hour on hour off for the most part. And then at night, we'd give each other a longer time to sleep. So four, three to four hours at night at one point. And so at night, you couldn't see anything. But during the day, you're going hard for an hour. And then you're thinking, all right, when my hours over, I need to drink this and eat this and try to take a little nap. and And so you really didn't take in a lot of scenery. There were some Sometimes when I did, I mean, going over Wolf Creek Pass in Colorado, which is the highest point in the race I was doing it in the evening It was a beautiful night. I kind of took things in there and some other places as well that I'd never seen before. But for the most part, your head, your head is down and you're racing and you're not looking around a whole lot during the race across
1: America. Do you notice the camera crew that's documenting everything? Because I'm assuming that you knew what was going on and that you eventually wanted to make a film out of this. Uh, when you started
0: yeah at the beginning for the first couple of days um i i you you did notice them and then after a while you began to do two things at least i did not really notice the camera crew i mean talking to you and uh, documenting what you're doing and then toward the end of the race the last couple of days we're looking for them i'm, I'm looking for the camera crew is like these are my friends i've become close to these guys it, because when you're when you're riding like that without sleep and you're just going hard and your body's just being uh, put to the test, you're, you're looking for some kind of something you can hold on to. And that camera crew was so awesome. They were helping out with, with, with taking the, staying on course and fixing tires and they became our buddies. And so I'm looking for them like, oh yeah, there's the van, there's the camera crew again. Those are my friends. I, I, I know them. And, and I, and I want to see them and talk to them again. So at the beginning, it was kind of a hassle. In the middle, it was I'm not even noticing. At the end, I want to talk to them.
1: So when you're done with this race, I imagine you're just completely exhausted. What is the first thing you do besides sleep once you're done with this <laughs> race?
0: Yeah, my, my wife and kids were with us at that point. They met us at the end. My, my daughter was actually on our crew, but my, my wife and son joined us at the end, and we finished about five o'clock in the morning. So we celebrated a little bit at the pier when we, when he finished and we went back to the hotel room and slept for about four hours. And then after that, I was like, honey, I need to eat. <laughs> so there was, there was a Mexican restaurant right across from the hotel and I went over there and I ordered a meal and I got all done with that. And I ordered a second one. <laughs> so it was, you know, now let's uh, uh, I raced, I slept. Now it's time to
1: eat. One of the other questions I'd like to ask just about everyone who comes on this show is, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to when you have an off day, and uh, both on the national level or at the professional level, and maybe a couple local people from your area or region who are under the radar? Yeah, um, I, I can tell you, first
0: of all, that, uh, that uh, before I got in the NBA, I used to try to listen to A guy named Jim Durham. He used to do the Chicago Bulls. He's passed away now. In the in the heyday of the Bulls, Michael Jordan. He was their radio play-by-play guy. I could get their games in Topeka when I was in school, um, and I listened to. I thought he was great. So Jim Durham was one that I really admired. Tried to emulate. On the TV side, it was Dick Enberg. And I actually got to know Dick a little bit doing the, he was doing the Padres and now passed away as well. And then Vin Scully, who who, uh, who I think is the best baseball broadcaster ever, still around, um, but is retired now, as you know. Those three guys are probably, um, are probably, uh, as good as anybody I've ever come across in terms of baseball, basketball, and just overall any sport with with Dick Enberg. Um, there's a guy in Denver, uh, Mike Rice, who's actually working for our station. Who, who's a backup play-by-play guy for Jack and I when we we miss a game. And Mike is uh, also does uh, he used to do University of Northern Colorado games excellent basketball and football announcer. Really, really good. Underrated and doesn't get enough time doing by play He's our sports director at our station now, but just a really talented guy who I think has got a really bright future.
1: How would someone reach out to you if they wanted to contact you after this podcast? JerryShimmel.com
0: is my website,
1: and there's email uh, available on that, so yeah,
0: time that uh, anybody would like to contact me, I'm available uh, jerryshimmel.com is the website, and you can contact me through that.
1: Jerry, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You bet Logan, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. This has been the Say The Damn Score podcast. Please subscribe to the show and any or all of its social media platforms by clicking on the big red button on the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. I also appreciate iTunes reviews or any kind of honest feedback that can help me make the show even better. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.